Well, good morning. Well, once again, as many Christians around the world today are commemorating Palm Sunday, we will be taking a break from our series in Acts. And today we'll be opening up to the Gospel of John, actually the same passage that Aaron read a while ago. It's worth reading again. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things that had been written about him and that they had, come, that, that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given them this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Sometimes I wonder what historians a hundred years from now, how they'll make sense of our time and our culture. What artifacts will they use? What will be our cave paintings? I wonder if it's internet memes. I mean, because uh, there's so many internet memes, it feels like you have to be on the inside of our culture to get the inside joke, if you will. But there's, but there's one family of memes that I find interesting because it's so relatable. And that is the, the family meme of expectation versus reality. Maybe you've seen some of these. On one side, it'll be what you expected. Hey, this is what I expect to look like or what I expect this experience to be like or to feel like but then reality turns out to be a bit less than expected. For example, let's say that you see on Pinterest or wherever some, the, uh, some like adorable looking cookie, perhaps like these like little teddy bear cookies. Do we have that, that slide up? These little, these cookies that look like little adorable teddy bears and they're holding little almonds. How adorable is that? <laughs> and you think to yourself, Hey, maybe I want to impress my friends with some of these cookies, or maybe I'll enter these into the great Egg Pex Bake Off. And you try this, but then the reality sets in, and well, <laughs> you, you, you were hoping for adorable teddy bears, but what you end up with is these googly-eyed Pac-Man ghost kind of cookies. And I love that, like, <laughs> we don't have almonds, but let's give them pecans. I'm sure it's the same, right? So. Look, now, if this ends up being your experience with the great Apex Bake Off, just know this is a judgment-free zone and that we're laughing with you and not at you. That's a very important note. But, of course, culinary fails aren't only uh, what happens at your house and in your homes. This is also true of businesses, and, and we learned this is true of advertisement, right? They try to entice you with this big, delicious-looking burger, right, this cheeseburger that just looks like Oh, it's, it's wonderful, right? That looks somewhat appetizing for those of us who eat red meat, right? But, but we know by now the reality is this kind of, you know, not so much that, but that, 
pathetic abomination, right? It's just, and we know this by now. We, what we expected did not turn out to be reality. And this might be true of stuff like vacations. We, we like to take vacations. And maybe in your mind, you have, you know, I like to go to a beach. And this beach will have something like, you know, white sands and a palm tree, maybe even some sort of like swing to, to kind of like rock with the rhythm of the ocean. But then you get there and reality sets in that other people like the beach too. <laughs> other people like the beach. And you have as much personal space as big as your beach towel, really. And there's some strange six-year-old building a sandcastle at your feet and he's getting most of it, you know, on you, right? It doesn't turn out to be what you'd expected. Or maybe you decide to go bigger for a vacation and you say, like, you know what, let's go somewhere far, somewhere a bit, you know, outside of America. Let's go to Brazil. Let's go to Rio. And in Rio, you'll, you'll, you'll look forward to seeing that Christ the Redeemer statue, right? It's kind of a well-known statue. Of course, if you wanted to see a statue of Jesus, just head south to Cincinnati. You'll, it'll be on your left. This one's a bit more, bit more well-known, a bit more famous. And, and say that you want to get some like, awesome picture like this. I mean, this is kind of a picture you'd hang up in your house and show your friends. But then you get there, and reality sets in that you get the... You get the ascension version of Jesus where he's covered in the cloud and it's not quite the best picture that you would take, right? Yeah. So I think the expectation versus reality meme, I think, I think it's a bit of a coping mechanism, right? We laugh to keep from crying because we all know what it's like to have unmet expectations and the disappointment of that. And, and sometimes it really hurts. Perhaps you're at a point in life that by now you thought you would be married, or by now you thought you would be a parent, and the reality really hurts. Or maybe you are married, but, but what you're finding is that marriage life isn't what you expected. There's much more self-sacrifice and inconvenience and a lot less romance and adventure and compatibility. Maybe parenting isn't what you would expected. In spite of your best efforts to feed this child organic fruits and vegetables and play Baroque music at 60 beats per minute for brain function, and somehow still this young person has the audacity to not heed your wisdom and direction. Maybe your, your career isn't what you thought it would be. You know, when, when we were kids, we thought, I want to be an astronaut or a cowboy or a baker, or a teacher, or a football player. Because when you're nine years old, you didn't know there was a such thing as assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> and, and so here you are, and, and maybe you, you have this job, and, and you're not getting the promotions you thought you'd get. You're not, your salary isn't what it is. And maybe just in general, adulthood is not what you would expect it. Because when we're kids, we're, we say, I can't wait till I'm an adult. Because in our minds, adults were so free. But you get here and you find you have more people telling you what to do now than you did when you were a kid. Whether it's your boss, your landlord, the IRS. I thought I would be free. Maybe this is also true of, say, spiritual aspects or ministry aspects of your life. I came across an article written by a lady named Jackie Knapp. Uh, the title of the article is, What if your 20s weren't what you expected? 
And in this article, she lists a number of things that may have been more popular, say, like 25 or so years ago, uh, but people in my generation may, some of these may sound familiar. She says that somewhere between elementary school self-esteem talks, Jesus Freaks youth group lessons, and you can single-handedly evangelize the 1040 window college mission conferences, we were pumped up and ready to change the world. We anticipated picture-perfect marriages and families after we signed our commitments at True Love Waits and kissed dating goodbye. What could go wrong when we had the prayer of Jabez on our side and enough Christian t-shirts to win the world to Jesus? We were doing our part with sponsored children, the 30-hour famine, and prayer vigils for the persecuted church. God would certainly give us a good life with all of that sacrifice, wouldn't he? Although we consistently asked, what would Jesus do? No one told us how important it was to learn how to deal with suffering. While we may have escaped much of the suffering of the world in generations past, we weren't equipped to deal with the realities of life. We had categories for the American dream and grand ministry experiences, but many of us didn't have a framework to endure the death of siblings, financial hardship, cancer, or family conflict. And here we are, 10 years later, trying to deal with hard things and coming to terms with our own sin and the harsh fact that suffering isn't ageist after all. So what does expectation have to do with what we read in John chapter 12? Well, the word expectation is not appear in the text, and nor does it appear in the synoptic gospels of the same account. But this passage is pregnant with expectation. Jesus and his disciples had certainly gone to the Passover feast in Jerusalem in the years past and years before, but this time was different. Jesus wasn't going to merely walk in. He was going to ride in. And he wasn't going to ride just any animal. He was going to ride the colt of a donkey, specifically a colt that no one had ever sat on before, the kind of animal in those days that a king would ride. So it seems here that Jesus is suspending the messianic secret, this thing in the Gospels wherever Jesus performs a sign and the people who experience it or witness it, he says to them, no, don't, don't go telling anybody. Because it was not the time for the spotlight to be on Jesus. But here, as Jesus goes riding into Jerusalem, he's bringing the spotlight onto himself, and there would be no turning back. So he's making specific claims here about who he is. The crowd recognizes this, and they begin to have certain expectations. But before we get to that, I think it's important to review some historical background. You see, because out of the last 500 of the, the previous 600 years to this, Israel had been ruled by other kingdoms and empires. Going back to the Old Testament, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, had ruled over Judah. But then the Persian Empire took over. And in the space between the Old and New Testaments, the Greeks took over under Alexander the Great, who uh, took the Persian Empire and expanded it, spreading Hellenization uh, as Greek thought and Greek culture and language became more popular. But then, 
At his unexpected death at age 32, we're still not really sure whether it was malaria or that he was poisoned. We don't know why he died. But on his deathbed at age 32, his four generals asked, who's going to take over? Who's going to take your place? His answer was, the strongest. Well, they all disagreed about who that was. And so his empire was split among his four generals who would kind of clash to expand their own territory. But eventually, Israel became part of the Greek Seleucid Empire, named for one of Alexander's generals. Moving forward to about the 170s BC, Israel was ruled by a Seleucid king named Antiochus IV, calling himself Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus was really cruel in his rule over the Jews. Some of the Seleucid kings before had a bit more respect for uh, Jewish culture. Him, not so much. He really wanted to promote Hellenization. He uh, banned adherence to the Torah, to God's law. They were no longer allowed to circumcise their children under the, the threat of death. And in 167, he dedicates the temple in Jerusalem to the Greek god Zeus and even slaughters a pig, an unclean animal to the Jews, on the altar of the temple and attempted to force the priest to eat its flesh. Well, soon after, five sons of a priest named Mattathias would begin a revolt. They would start an army and they would employ ambushes and guerrilla tactics to fight the Seleucids. And, and, and they were led by the third son, a, a guy named Judah. He would become known as Judah Maccabee or Judah the Hammer. And in 164, three years after Antiochus uh, dedicated the temple to Zeus, Judah the Hammer and his army came and uh, over, overcame the Seleucids in Jerusalem, and he took back the temple for Yahweh. And this, of course, is connected to the origin of the Feast of Hanukkah. But when the people saw this, when the people saw of Jerusalem saw this victory, they shouted praises to the one who delivered them, and they began to wave palm branches. They did the same when, decades later when his brother Simon came riding in after liberating all of Israel, and, you know, kicking off this new era, this new period of time where Israel would be ruled by itself, that they would have a Jewish king ruling over them, a period of time called the Hasmonean dynasty. So palm branches became this kind of symbol of Jewish nationalism and victory. Palm branches were to them what stars and stripes are to us. Of course, the Hasmonean dynasty lasted roughly about 80 years until 63 BC when a general named Pompey came uh, from Rome and claimed Israel for Rome, which is, leads us to where uh, the text that we read today, Jewish under Roman occupation. So what are the people thinking as they're waving these palm branches? They see Jesus riding in, they're thinking, we've done this before. We've, we know what it's like to throw off the, our oppressors. All we need is the right leader. And they see Jesus riding in and, and they hear these reports about how he raised this man named Lazarus from the dead. Quite a handy guy to have on your team, right? 
If a guy can raise people from the dead, you have a limitless army. 200 could take on 10,000. The Romans would be thinking, didn't I just kill this guy 10 minutes ago? They don't die. So as Aaron pointed out, they're thinking it's time to finally be free, finally go back to the glory days of David, finally be to be rid of our oppressors. And when they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, they don't mean save us from our sins. Not the way that we say it. They say save us from the Romans. But Jesus would not be meeting their expectations. Because Jesus knows that their problem was not primarily a political problem. Their problem and their greatest enemy was not Rome. Because Jesus knows that, and as it's bared out many times in history, when you liberate the oppressed, they themselves often become the oppressors. Their big problem lies within the heart of every human. It's sin. Jesus came to bear sin and to take it to the grave. And so as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem in Luke's version, it has Jesus weeping because he knows that the people are not going to let go of this idea that Rome is their biggest problem. And they're going to try to continue to to shake this off and it's going to lead to their destruction. It's going to crush them. And in 70 AD, it does, as the city was sacked and the temple was destroyed. And the, but the disciples of Jesus had this same notion, had this same idea. You know, even up to the ascension, they say, Jesus, is now the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Still thinking very earthly, still thinking very nationally. But let's imagine, let's use, let's use our imaginations for a minute and, and go to that Friday afternoon and that Saturday after Jesus is crucified. And imagine you're one of the disciples. What are you thinking and what are you feeling? I'm sure at some level you're grieving, you're feeling sad. This man you've devoted your life to, Jesus was your friend and now he's dead. You might feel a little bit guilty for have left him in the garden. You also, you also might feel a bit angry, angry at the Jewish leaders and the Romans who had carried out this injustice. But at the same time, if you're honest, you might be a little bit angry at Jesus because he led us to believe that he was somebody that he so painfully, obviously is not. Messiah doesn't die. So you'd feel fooled, embarrassed by how gullible you were, disappointed, had such hopes, such expectations. Certainly you would feel confused. We know what we saw. We saw him walk on water. We saw him feed the multitudes. We saw him cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick, 
and he empowered us to do the same. I don't know how to explain this because there's this, there's this that we saw, but the scriptures say that cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. How do we live with that tension? We've all, at some degree, felt all of those emotions. Maybe not to the degree that they felt it on that Saturday, but we've all felt those. We all know what it's like to be disappointed with unmet expectations. And it's okay to be disappointed at times, but at the same time, we must be very careful not to allow disappointment to grow into bitterness, to where it keeps us from pursuing intimacy with God, to where it keeps us from praying. We sing a song here at Apex called You Are Good. And there, uh, there's a bridge in that song that says, you're never going to let, never going to let me down. If I could be honest for a second, in and, and hopes that no one's going to chase me off the stage here, there are weeks where it's a bit hard for me to allow my lips to move along with that bridge. Because in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking, Lord, I don't know. I feel like sometimes you have let me down. Am I the only one? But what's the reality? The reality is not that he has let me down. The reality is that my misplaced expectations have let me down. I have accused God of not keeping promises that he's never, met, that he's never made to me. The reality is that we, we sang a while ago, not for a minute was I forsaken. But sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? And I think it's easy for us as 21st century Westerners to feel that way. Um, last weekend, I took uh, the form interns and I went on a retreat where we um, meditated on a book called um, The Celebration of Discipline, a bit of a classic by a guy named Richard Foster, uh, meditating on different spiritual disciplines. And he opens chapter one by saying, superficiality is the curse of our time. And the doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. Instant satisfaction, instant gratification. He wrote this back in 1978. It's a good thing that in the past 40 years, we don't have that problem anymore, do we? <laughs> no, we totally do. He wrote this before email, before text messaging, before streaming on demand. Before Alexa, before Google, before Amazon two-day shipping. Back when you had to rewind something called cassette tapes. So, but now, <laughs> someone asked, what is cassette tapes? That's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. But in our world today, so much of the world is at our fingertips. And I wonder if we struggle to exercise patience you know, because when else do we get, like, we, we don't have as many opportunities to exercise it. And I wonder if that's a muscle that's beginning to atrophy. So we have that, the instant gratification thing, add social media to that, add what Christian Smith, the sociologist, says that most of us are practical deists who believe that God exists to fix our problems, add our American values of individuality and the pursuit of pleasure, and what you end up with is a culture full of people who think they are the center of the universe. 
and that includes you and me. And when you think you're the center of the universe, you begin to feel a bit entitled. And when you're entitled, you, a bit, you begin to have certain expectations. And when you're entitled and your expectations aren't met, we aren't equipped to deal with it. This is related, um, I think this is related. Um, a doctor named Paul Brand, a medical doctor, uh, he spent a couple of decades in India where he ministered to lepers. Well, he's come, ba- he's come back to America in a, in a book called The Gift of Pain. He observes, he shares his observations. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients live at a greater comfort, comfort level than any I had previously treated but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and are far more traumatized by it. Elsewhere in an interview, he says, a double irony is at work. In conquering pain and suffering to a degree unmatched in history, we've inadvertently become less able to cope with it. And by endlessly seeking pleasure, we've bred the ever-rising expectations that keep contentment tantalizingly out of reach. In the West, we struggle with suffering because we don't expect it. C.S. Lewis gives this uh, illustration. He says, imagine that uh, you and I are outside of a door, and I say that on the other side of this door is a honeymoon suite, or the, the most expensive room that a hotel has to offer. And then we walk through that door, and you observe that it really is just kind of a basic, average hotel room. And you're thinking, is this it? It's kind of a dump. But now, let's say that we're standing outside of the door, and I tell you, it's the same room, and I tell you, on the other side of this door is a jail cell. And you walk in, it's the same average room, well, what are you thinking now? That's not too bad for a jail cell. There's crimes I'd be willing to do three to five for if these are the accommodations. What's the difference? Your your attitudes changed, but what else changed? Your expectations. Because after all, Jesus said, in this world, you will have ease and comfort, right? No, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. He gets very real with us. But he doesn't leave us devoid of hope. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's not to say we should walk around pessimistically, just assuming everything's always going to go wrong, but maybe we should be a bit more open-handed, saying, Lord, I don't know what to expect. It could go either way, but your will be done. So sometimes I wonder if we struggle when our expectations aren't met because we forget what kind of story we're in. It's a story of creation and fall. Yes, new creation is coming, but it's not here yet. It's still a fallen world. And no, life isn't fair. And to know that life isn't fair, well, you have a friend in Jesus. He can tell you all about it. So we remember what kind of story we're in. Second, let's consider our focus. Consider your focus. Remember how the disciples, the crowd, 
they were focused on a national liberation. They were focused on a Messiah who would come and chase away the Romans, right? But Jesus did not meet their expectations because their expectations were not in line with God's agenda. It may be that when we find ourselves disappointed, when we find ourselves with unmet expectations, we might want to ask ourselves, where is my focus? Is my focus in line with God's agenda? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. And it may be that sometimes, sometimes, God's choosing not to meet your expectations as a grace because he doesn't want to hand you over to your idols. Your expectations might be related to desires, and those desires might be good desires, but you have made these desires into ultimate things. And God loves you enough not to hand you over to those. What if, it, what if your marriage becomes everything you want it to be? What if your job is everything? What if your income is everything that you expected? Would there still be room for Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? Finally, let the death and resurrection be reasons to trust, especially when you're confused. Look, we, when, when things don't go as we expect, it, it may be we, we're, we're tempted to ask the question, Jesus, do you even care? Are you for me? The cross of Christ answers that with an emphatic yes. I am for you. I do care. I see you and I love you. And we may not be able to explain why all the time things don't go as we expect, but we can conclude it is not because of God's indifference. And when it comes to the resurrection, consider again the, the disciples on Saturday. Consider them in the depths of their disappointment. What's on the other side of that disappointment? Resurrection. If Jesus can bring about something as glorious as a resurrection on the other side of their deep disappointment, what might he have on the other side of yours? You see, the disciples were playing an extreme version of the expectation versus reality meme. We were expecting a conquering king with his sword drenched with Roman blood. But what we got was a corpse drenched in his own blood. No, the reality beyond the reality is they got a resurrected king who didn't conquer an empire with a sword, but conquered the whole world with love. The implications of his resurrection is your resurrection. I can assure you, you will not be disappointed. New creation will be beyond your expectations. And all of your unmet expectations and disappointments now will only serve to make resurrection that much sweeter.